with us. Go ahead, Kevin. Kevin with Predictive Online Marketing, um, do paid ads. Um, and uh, we have Robert Riggs on here from DFWSCM, uh, a longtime DFWSCM member and um, and podcaster. Um, it's hard to uh, go into your background. You've got plenty. I'd love to hear. Um, go ahead. Uh, tell us about it. Well, hey, what a great organization that was. So that's where all, the, all three of us met each other. And it really laid the foundation for me coming out of journalism, just to understand internet marketing and SEO. And, and I, you know, I contribute part of my success into the learning there, you know, and I probably joined that group back in 2010, something like that. And, uh, boy, was it helpful. You know, I've learned from all of you and I thank you. Yeah. A, yeah it's a great organization. So, um, um, yeah, so many people I keep in touch with. And um, so you were an investigative journalist for a long time. I mean, I'd love to hear more about that. Well, I, my career path has been zigged and zagged all over the place. Uh, uh, a lot of people don't know this. I graduated from Texas A&M with a degree in architecture and building construction. Uh, but while I was at A&M, I got hooked on politics. I had worked as an intern over in the Texas legislature and would literally cut class and go over and work for the senator and, you know, get coffee for him, <laughs> but just learning. And then there were two classes at A&M that were, became political junkies. And the class behind me was uh, Rick Perry, who later became governor. Uh, wow. John Sharp, who was a, a senator, then Texas controller, now the chancellor of A&M. You know, chancellor of A&M, you may be more powerful than the governor in some respects. But I went to work straight out of A&M. And listen, this was a five-year program, five years, two summers, uh, because, you know, you had to take a lot of engineering and everything. My father was like, man, are you ever going to graduate? And then, you know, much to much to the consternation of my dad was I went, by the way, dad, I'm, I'm going to Washington. I'm going to work for a member of Congress. And I was fortunate. I went to work for the uh, a, the senior member of the House. These were the days of the seniority system where if you had outlived everyone, you had the choice pol political assignments of committees. And just to put this in perspective, I had on his staff, his name, he was Representative Wright Patman, very famous back in that time. I arrived on his staff in May of 1972. He'd been elected in 1929 and was chairman of five committees, had a huge staff. And, you know, I'm at the bottom of the pyramid, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm yeah. you know, I find myself at first as a gopher, but he started the first Watergate investigation. And I ended up just chasing down paper. In, in these days, if you if you needed a 10K or an 8K from the SEC, which you, do, you know today, using Edgar or something, click of a mouse, I got it. You literally had to go to the agency and go in their archives. And by the way, these archives, and I'd have to do this at the Library of Congress. You remember that closing scene in the Raiders of the Lost Ark? When the, you know, the Ark has been put in this box and there's a oh, sea, yeah. of boxes. <laughs> sea of boxes. Yeah. That's the way. That's the way. I'm, I had an alarm set for you guys here. That is the way uh, these agencies looked. 
Um, the, the Library of Congress back in the back were these uh, card catalogs, the Dewey Decimal System, the way things, and there were 22,000 drawers of card catalogs. And you'd literally have to go in there looking for books and documents and everything else. And so that's what I did, but I had a knack for digging and kind of enjoyed it. It was always like a hunt, you know, it was like a mystery. And that got me promoted to one of his committees as an investigator. And I dealt with the Wall Street Journal reporters, New York Times, the network reporters, in particular, Bob Schieffer, who's from Fort Worth. And Bob was the CBS uh, congressional correspondent in those days. Now, he went on to become the anchor at one point of CBS Evening News. And Linda, really famous for the anchor for the... Uh, Face the nation. And so I made all those relationships and I took a break. And a friend of mine was running the, uh, an acquaintance was running the Carter, first Carter presidential campaign. And so I went out and went to work for that on the, you live out of a suitcase as, as, as an advanced man. But I came back and was like, you know, I got to, I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I spent a year working with the top producer of television commercials for Democratic candidates. Later, he would become really famous. He did President Clinton's commercials. And at a and I had taken filmmaking. I liked filmmaking and I always liked telling stories. And I grew up in a, a, a storytelling family. My great uncle was a patriarch. You know, as a kid growing up, we'd sit on a screen porch overlooking their little lake and all the men would be telling stories from the depression and working in the oil fields of East Texas. And it just got in my DNA. I just loved it and just, you know, came around it. And so Bob Schieffer and played a big role, helped me get into television. And uh, we're still friends to this day. We kind of came full circle. You know, I just finished doing a television show called Free to Kill and Bob's in it. You know, all these years later, wow. but, uh, that got me started. Bob helped me get in the business and I started in New York in television. It was a tough deal because you needed a, what was called on an audition tape, an audition reel. Everybody wants to see, Hey, what do you look like on camera? Are you a pretty boy, pretty girl, literally. And, um, what are your stories like? You know, did you, what did it look? Could you, are they well-produced and what have you? Well, I had none of that. And Schieffer helped me uh, get one of those together. And I literally would go to hearings and stuff on the Hill and follow him. I'd write my own version of the story. Bob would leave his camera crew, which he was not supposed to do, on the Hill for me to shoot what's called a stand-up. That's the close of the story that you see. And out of all that, I got a... I got a, an audition tape that led to me getting a, a, another thing, a freelance. And I came over with an audition tape and I got hired by what was then called Viacom. They were the huge catalog of shows, but they had decided really to go into television. And they had bought a station, uh, their first station. They bought this uh, station in upstate New York and Albany, the seat of government. And I got hired, they had cleaned house and they were really trying to make it, you know, more respectable and what have you. And they were hiring 
you know, seasoned journalist. And I covered the legislature, the government, and was an investigative reporter. And I won, uh, after three years there, I won a DuPont, a Columbia University DuPont Award. That is television's equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. And uh, it was the first um, DuPont that Viacom had ever won. They renewed the deal. God, they were excited, you know, brought me to New yeah. York, a big party gave us a limousine for the weekend, you know, stuff like that. But that, that award, then everybody became, came to my door knocking, you know, uh, wanting yeah. to hire me. And I got a lot of offers. I ended up with WFAA channel eight in Dallas, Texas. Now in those days, everything has changed in the industry. Now in those days, that was the number one ABC station in the nation. It was the biggest, had the biggest audience, the biggest budgets, and it operated like a network. And I remember Bob Schieffer telling me, look, if you want to come to work as a correspondent here, you need to go there. That's the place. The day that I started, Scott Pelley started with me. Scott later became the anchor of the CBS Evening News. Um, so it operated like a network. I mean, in those days, breaking news stories, we got on Lear jets and took off. It, it was an, an amazing time. And I was there a year and they decided they wanted to be the first big station in the country to open a Washington DC bureau, East coast bureau. And since I had worked in Congress, they're like, Hey, you're the guy. And I really wanted to do it. It was perfect. Now, when I say biggest station, let me give you this. They were the first station in the country to have a helicopter that you could broadcast live from. They were the first station in the country to have a satellite truck. They were the first station in the country to have a fleet of live microwave remote vans. And so in that time period, uh, late seventies up through the eighties, they dominated the other stations in the Dallas Fort Worth market. They did. It's like they didn't even yeah. exist. And in those days, via cable, their signal went all over Texas. So, uh, which, which, you know, people wanted to talk to you and you heard a lot more because of that stuff. And then the Washington Bureau, I covered the Congress. I covered the White House during President Reagan in the beginning of George H.W. Bush. I did presidential campaigns. Uh, I loved it during President Reagan because, you know, I'd, I'd gone to AM and then later when AM was military, and then later I worked for the in Congress for the Joint Committee on Defense Production. And so I was schooled by the military and trained by them, loved the stories. And so Reagan took on the Soviets, you know, and, and broke the Soviet Union, but he had his 600 ship Navy and his his buildup. Well, I went everywhere. I mean, I did two documentaries on aircraft carriers. You know, I spent time. I was the first camera crew ever allowed on the attack submarine Dallas to go to sea. Made famous by Tom Clancy's Hunt for Red October. If you've oh, seen yeah. that, <laughs> we did all that stuff. We uh, and I got to know Tom Clancy. Uh, oh, during all, wow. all, yeah, Tom and I became acquainted. Wow. Um, and he was so interesting. The, um, I, 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 
had read some of his stuff. He used to write essays in something called Naval Proceedings that was published out of Annapolis at the uh, Naval Academy, from the Naval Academy. It was their publishing arm. And he was an insurance salesman in Southern Maryland. Had a little insurance agency. And this guy is publishing these really high-level thought things. And then he... He came out for Hunt for Red October. A lot of people don't know this. Hunt for Red October started as the first fiction publication by the Naval Proceedings. Naval Proceedings was read by everybody connected to naval warfare in the Pentagon and around the world. And it is a hit. It is. It just is a massive hit inside. And then later, you know, the publishers come calling. But... When I'm uh, later, I'm back covering the Reagan White House. Uh, I call Clancy, don't know him or anything. I just find his number and call him because he had a thing in the book that had been top secret. And um, it's not now, and it, it, it wasn't when he published, but it had it, no few people knew about this. And what we had done, we had lined the continental shelf with hydrophones and all the passages to the northern ports of the Soviet Union and all over the world. And we would record the sound that their propellers and reactors made as they came out. And each one had a unique signature. So we were building a, 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 just this encyclopedia to know every ship in the Navy, including their submarines, to be able to track them. And that is in Hunt for Right to October. And I, I called him up and I said, hey, I, I got to ask you, how'd you know this? How did you know it? He said, okay, come down and go to lunch with me. So I go down to Southern Maryland, we have lunch. And it turns out, and, and Tom, by the way, was, good Lord, he, he was just about blind. His, his glasses were as thick as the bottom of Coke bottles. But he was this voracious reader of everything open source about our military and the Soviet military. I mean, just, you know, lived it. That, that was his passion. And he, he would absorb it and he would do what a CIA analyst would do. He would read the stuff about the Soviets and extrapolate about, well, okay, if I was a Soviet submarine captain, what would I do knowing what their philosophy is, you know, what their MO is. Yeah. And he wants, and, and that's why hunt for red October, which is kind of loosely based on the true story about other ships. That's why it has is so compelling because it's so real. And he even at one point later, years later was, met a Russian sub-commander who said, how did you know that a, you know, one of our submarine captains would act that way in Hunt for Red October? And he was like, I read the book. I read it. And the hydrophones, he had figured it out from reading stuff in the public stuff. Like, for instance, the defense budget and all the testimony by the military and all, he would get all of the copies of all the congressional hearings and devour it just devoured and began to kind of extrapolate. He was the most interesting character. 
and said, he said, you know, um, they're getting ready to release my big publisher, Hunt for Red October, and they've got the rights. And I'm going to have a book signing at the Pentagon Bookstore. Why don't you come over? And there's a mezzanine level of the Pentagon where the subway and all comes in. And it's like a shopping center under the Pentagon. Everything imaginable. And there's a bookstore there. And I go there and good Lord, there are admirals and everything lined up for the book. But I, I will never forget his agent comes in and hands him keys to a brand new Mercedes sports car convertible. And Tom looks at me and goes, oh my God, it'll never get better than this. This is unbelievable. Never get better than this. Well, fast forward, you know, later, you know, he, he, he gets a deal for all kinds of books. So later I'm, I'm visiting him at his new home in Southern Maryland. And I go down there and he's, he said, look at this. I've got my own study. Look at all these bookshelves. And it wasn't anything. It was a really nice home, but it wasn't anything, you know, immaculate. And he's like, it'll never get any better than this. Well, fast forward when the movies and all that start. Tom later has an estate on the Potomac River with a tank, a surplus <laughs> tank at the gate. But the guy uh, was amazing, you know, because his books, he, he, you know, if somebody used an M16, you got the whole history of the M16. Hell, you heard how the chamber was loaded and how the, the muzzle velocity of the bullet leaving the chamber. And uh, it, it was kind of, it was amazing. And I, I'll never forget, he got invited during the Reagan era to go to the uh, Navy Secretary, John Lehman's office. And Lehman was doing the 600 ship buildup. And Lehman wanted to meet him and all. And so Tom has really become quite famous at this point. And Tom is in there. And then all these admirals and the Joint Chiefs, everybody come in there. They all come in there to see him. And um, room is packed. And suddenly Lehman looks at all these flag officers with a straight face and serious and says, all right, I want to know who in the hell gave this man a security clearance. And the, and the room fell silent. I mean, everybody was like choking and suddenly Lehman laughs and they realize, Oh, he's pulling our leg. But he, you know, you, you had to think, okay, who's talking to this guy. One of the things I found out from Tom, like he was doing what any good reporter would do. He was calling flag officers, captains, uh, of not just, the U.S. military, but the British and others, when they were retired. And they were sitting around now bored with nobody paying attention to them. And they were, they were glad to talk with Tom, you know, and Tom got all kinds of stuff out of it. And it really is interesting. I mean, uh, one of my classmates and close friends at A&M, he became the four-star chief of staff of the Air Force, and you're on the Joint Chiefs. And it was amazing to see the change that took place with that change of ceremony command at the Pentagon. He's, uh, he's got, good Lord, he's got this huge staff. He, everywhere he goes, it's a, it's a motorcade. And this is post 9-11, of course. And there's a motorcade and guys with machine guns and, you know, everybody. Uh, I had him to dinner at my home in Dallas. 
had a little dinner and friends over and uh, Lord, the day before the uh, security teams come in, you know, casing out everything, escape routes and stuff. And, and they, they talk to the police. And so the day he comes, here comes the motorcade. You know, so they're standing around my outside of my home with, you know, machine guns and everything else. And in the back, in the back are all his aides and everything in communications gear. Well, literally, that all goes away immediately. All of that suddenly it's just you now. And I always thought, boy, that must be a tough transition. But Tom would, you know, he took a he took advantage of that. So um that was really a, a, a great experience. But then, you know, covering the military and everything else. And I then eventually came back to Texas. I was literally, I was burned out covering the white house and the Congress. It's, it's especially in those days, you didn't have all these digital tools. It was just grueling, grueling. And you would, you'd start at five in the morning and not finish until 10 at night. And uh, one of my friends was President Reagan's uh, press secretary. We literally had started on the Hill together back when I say we were kids out of college. And he, be he, he became and functioned the press secretary, although his title was deputy. But after, John, after Brady was shot by John Hinckley and left the job, he became, he was, he was deputy, but he was out of respect for Brady. He was like, I'm not taking the title, not doing it. You know, we need the, we need Brady to think he's coming back here. We you knew he wasn't because of the brain damage, but my God, his job would start. He'd be up at four and not go to bed until midnight. I mean, seven days a week. It was just awful. I mean, he just, and so I'd asked for a reassignment, came back to Texas, covering the Austin legislature, same media company. And that's where I really got into crime and got into a big investigation of corruption in the prison system and the parole system. And that literally lasted seven to eight years later involved in me covering terrorism. But um, that really became the fodder for my true crime podcast. I later left, the, the industry began changing and I went to CBS to the station group. That took me to cover the war in Iraq and terrorism and what have you. But that ended in 2008 with the recession. The whole industry just imploded. They laid off not hundreds, but thousands of people, veterans, producers, uh, veteran correspondents, anybody that was the first to go was anyone high paid with high benefits. I was in that category and boom, you're out. And that's kind of how I came to meet you guys. It was like I had a hugely popular blog on uh, terrorism. I mean, it was huge around the world. And uh, CBS, I started it in 2003, beginning of 2004. In those days, each station had its own website, but they didn't see any value in them. And they would give car dealers Hey, we'll throw into the, your TV ad deal some ads on the website. But I got in there and I realized the, none of the websites were even being indexed. In, in those days, Google had a local office in Dallas and I went to them 
and got them to index the site uh, because I sort of began learning, you know, primitive SEO and keyword stuffing, you know, those days when you could do all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and we started the blog and it took off. And CBS was always mad at me over there. They were like, look, why? I said, look, there's a huge audience outside the broadcast towers. They were, no, 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 we're in television. We're tele I was like, no, there's a big audience out there. And they just didn't get it. And that's one reason old media found itself in trouble. They just were stuck in their business model. You know, it was e they were having easy to make money. Now, suddenly we saw them, their audiences were all siphoned off by in those days cable but also the internets now especially today you know local news all over the country barely gets a blip in ratings it's dead and um, you know i uh, i had said in a meeting at one point look guys the day is coming you we're doing analog tv what we were doing is analog the day is coming with digital that no one will want to wait for sports till 20 after the hour. They want to get it when they can get it. You know, they're going to want to have a choice. Um, I said this in a meeting of executives and they literally called the president of news that I worked for before I'd even gotten back to his office. And he's just like, what the hell did you just say over there in the boardroom? And I told him, he said, they think you're nuts. They think you're crazy. I said, okay. Now, he was a smart guy and he knew, but, you know, they just were clueless. They were in this cocoon. So, but I, uh, when I got cut, that's how I met you guys. I started to like, you know, I got to learn more about this because I hung out a shingle, I felt just enough to be dangerous, that, hey, I was a digital marketing expert about content. And, you know, I started working with some, personal injury lawyers and others who really didn't know how to do content and everything. And the best thing that happened to me was when, uh, remember when Google changed the algorithms to, they got rid of really spam and duplicate content and all that, and they wanted real stuff. That really helped me. And so I, that kept me alive. You know, when I got cut, I had two kids in college, uh, uh, a, a, a huge home, way too big, way beyond our, you know, we, my wife called it the days of the big TV money. <laughs> she looks at our life as TV news money and then post TV news money. But, um, you know, I was able to pay the mortgage and uh, listen, we did a huge downsizing, but you know, was able to stay alive, met you guys there, began learning more. I got a, I got a severance from CBS and I, I literally took some of the money and I started going around attending some of the internet marketing conferences around the country. And, uh, it won in California, I met Vin Cerf, one of the fathers of the internet. He was a Google ambassador at the time. And, you know, really just started learning enough to be, I, I'd never claimed to be an expert, but just learning enough to be dangerous and ask the right questions of experts like you guys. And, uh, but I really, you know, I was telling stories for other people. You know, I was even helping, you know, one of the things I was doing was helping trial lawyers, injury lawyers, 
prepare opening statements and closing statements for juries, stuff like that. But I really wanted to get back to telling my own stories. And we had, we really kind of had done a test. I'd posted, gosh, over 150 stories on a YouTube channel just to see what would happen. I didn't optimize them. I kind of had my, I only optimized them for my name, but I didn't truly optimize them. And I put my stuff from Iraq there and military stories and all that. And I really felt that's what would be popular. But when I went back and looked at it, it was my true crime stuff that just was killing it. I mean, I, good Lord, I've got one video and there must have 700,000 views. And then it sort of told me, okay, here's what people really like in true crime. And uh, my wife always believed that would be the thing. And she's like, I told you so. So before the pandemic, I started putting together this true crime reporter podcast. I did a lot of research to do a business plan. Uh, wanted to understand what is the audience. And the audience is primarily female. It's 25 to 54 women. That's very attractive to advertisers. And I got the first season out uh, about a serial killer named Kenneth McDuff that I had done my original investigation around about how he got out of prison originally 30 years ago. And um, by the sixth episode, I was getting inquiries about television and I, you know, for everybody watching this, I can't stress the importance enough of you need to have a, a network, network of business associates, friends and connections, uh, because all of my, all of my inquiries, they came out of LinkedIn. You know, there were people in LinkedIn that, cause I'd post in there what I was doing and I got inquiries from people that I knew who they were. They weren't even, they weren't connected to me on LinkedIn. But they were like, hey, I know you. I've been watching your work. I'm doing this. You know, love to get involved with this. I've got this podcast network and stuff. And that led to a television production company reaching out to me. And we did a co-production agreement where I would be an executive producer and, you know, sharing some of the revenue and what have you. And so they then went out. They had a sales team and they sold this five-part series called Freed to Kill about Macduff and they sold it to Fox nation. And, you know, one of the things that happened is that, uh, you know, true crime would, had been on a roll popular and then defund the police hit. And suddenly everybody was afraid of true crime. They, no one wanted anything that was positive about law enforcement. I'll just put it right out there for you. And mine was because it focused on these committed marshals and homicide detectives that really went beyond the call of duty and the salary to, to solve this case. And then years later, find the bodies of his victims before he got executed. And Fox Nation went all in on it. They loved it. They loved it. They really stepped up. They did a big budget and they stayed out of our hair during it. And we got it on the air. It premiered in March. It's a hit at Fox. Now, Fox Nation is a kind of a closed garden. You know, it's a it's a, a niche audience. It's not on Amazon. It's not on Netflix. Uh, 
it's it's been sort of interesting after this happened and suddenly netflix came calling like uh could we could we get this or like no nope, sorry fox has got the rights to it uh and it's being sold international paramount plus bought the rights for the united kingdom uh and it's going to be on over it's going to be on all over the world it's being sold all over the world fortunately i had a deal that would also pay me uh, what you would call a residual small money every time it sells overseas. And I would say to anybody watching this, if you've got a podcast or something that, or anything that's going to go to television, get yourself a top flight entertainment lawyer, not just a regular lawyer, entertainment lawyer that knows that world. I didn't do that. I kind of just went, frankly, I didn't think it would happen, you know, and boom, it does happen. And I, you know, it was my first time to the rodeo. It, it could have been a better deal, but I, I came out of it with something that's proven that's actually getting me a lot of attention and approach. I mean, I just got off a call here with a big group out of Los Angeles has contacted me. Well, Hey, what else do you have? We're listening to your podcast. What do you have that can be spin off? So the podcast, in a way, has become like a test of intellectual property uh, yeah. for television. But um, that's kind of a – I've kind of gone long with it. I know you got questions about, you know, the path. And by the way, I'm going to be speaking at Podcast Movement They in Dallas. They've asked me to – speak on, you know, how did a independent podcaster get a TV show? And it's certainly from what I know, there've been others that have done it, but this is the largest budget production that any independent has gotten. Can you plug that a little? You said podcast movement, date, uh, time. Podcast movement, August 24th, three day conference here in Dallas. Uh, I've been to, Two of their events. If you're interested in podcasting, this is the place to go because there's different tracks. If you're a beginner, you're interested in it, it's the place to go. You know, for instance, my audio producer, I mean, he'll be going on a track about studying immersive video and other techniques to use. Uh, there are business tracks, uh, there's tracks on social media and audience growth. You know, the number one challenge for podcasters and just about anything these days is discovery. There's just so much stuff out there and distractions. Um, how do you get discovered? And, you know, that's been one of my, so now I'm actually focused on doing deals with people that have got big existing audiences and you know, I listened to uh, Rand Fishkin. We all know Rand from you know, SEO, uh, Moz. And Rand's got this tool now called Spark Toro that I love because you can try to find, you know, where your audiences live online. For instance, it's where I've searched for where do, where do people that like serial killers live online? And serial killer, it's the mother of all search terms for true crime. But Rand, you know, counsels people, look, it's, you know, if you're small and independent, you don't have enough money to get there with ads and stuff. 
and he's he preaches and has uh, webinars on it. He's got a YouTube channel about, uh, you know, go find that magazine, that newspaper, that influencer, and partner with them somehow and ride their coattails. So I've, I've done that and uh, in Australia and New Zealand, there is a company there in, called Southern Cross Austereo. And I would say to everybody listening, especially podcast related, remember it's a big world. And uh, as I looked at things, the, the space for true crime is very crowded and saturated in the US. It's not overseas and it is very popular overseas. So just again, through the LinkedIn network of people found, finding me, somebody found me through somebody and they were a VC out of Los Angeles and they were working with uh, Southern Cross Stereo who were trying to go into podcasting and they were looking for top flight podcast. And so we did a deal where I produce it, it's geo-targeted and it's geofence for New Zealand and Australia. So they run ads there and then I can run ads elsewhere and you know, you know, the audience, it doesn't overlap on audiences, but over there they promote it. They got 170 radio stations. They promote it and sell it and we split the revenue. So, uh, you know, you just have to think differently with all the distractions and noise that's going on around everything these days. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, one of the things I found, for instance, um, in my YouTube channel, we put up promos for free to kill and, well, you know, always look at what your audience is saying, you know, what they're asking for and everything. And I began to notice comments in there, boy, I really want to see this because we had the trailer, but you know, I can't afford another channel. I can't afford another subscription. And then what do we see Netflix subscriptions going down the toilet and everything else and the recession and everything else. And I was thinking, Oh boy. All right. You know, uh, it made me even think, look, maybe we ought to be selling if we do any more TV selling to ad supported channels, you know, back to that model. Um, and the podcast ad supported, I don't like ads. I don't like the interruption, but right now I'm doing it, you know, just to stay alive and pay some bills. But I went to a great uh, conference called Creator Economy Expo put on by uh, Joe Paluzzi of the Tilt. Remember Joe started the, the Content Marketing Institute, had that great big conference every year. He's moved into nuts. And Brian Clark, if, remember of Copyblogger, Brian's yep. been things they put on this thing for creators about where is it going how do you as a creator have control and then suddenly i noticed joe and he did a podcast about it they you know these guys make their money through kind of online learning and suddenly their subscriptions the bottom dropped out it's just like people couldn't afford another subscription so joe for instance he found big brand sponsors like convert kit and others so now they're free with big, you know, branding. And, uh, I'm, a, I'm working on a, a deal. We're just about got it doing. We're doing a joint venture with a huge media company where I'm going to produce it. 
they are going to sell it and monetize it. But we're on with them. Uh, we're going the, for the podcast presenting sponsor, kind of like NPR does. Yeah. So it'll be branded around it. There'll be other things branded. But we're not going to interrupt. Uh, and I like that. Now, if you if you go to True Crime Reporter, those ads in there are what I call the usual suspects that you hear, you know, and everything where Better Help, Green Chef, those kinds of products. You know, I want someday the growth to be there that uh, I could I could go get my own kind of brand sponsors. Just I don't have enough numbers there, and it's all about numbers. That's why you need these partnerships. You got to to get the numbers and the, the media company I'm partnering with. Oh, but my God, when you look at all what they have, magazines, TV stations, uh, television shows, they got, they've got the eyeballs and reach. And I, I just, we've all, you know, all of us are small people. We just got to leverage that. So how do you, um, how do you go, uh, you Tell me about this transition. Like you're going, you're, uh, you're, uh, you're in congressional aid doing, uh, doing work like that. Then you're starting to get into uh, asking, you know, you know, uh, interviewing, doing like political investigations or, or just the, uh, or the mm -hmm. broadcasting of it. And, um, and then at a certain point, you're in Iraq, right? You're riding along with troops, right? Yeah. Is that, um, and also how, did, what is I, that? So I did. Under during President Reagan, I did the war in Latin America and Honduras and Nicaragua with the Contras. I did an assignment there, and then I did Gulf War One, and then I did Iraq. Now Iraq, I was with a lead unit in two thousand three, the invasion, and I'd never been shot at up close and personal. It was a whole different experience. And then the war dramatically changed a year later to roadside bombs and that sort of stuff. In the early days, uh, you know, they'd shoot at us and they'd be crushed, you know, but the, uh, they figured out asymmetrical warfare or basically terrorism, you know, we're on their turf. They figure out how we operate and they started doing the roadside bombs. They had a help from the Iranians and, you know, U.S. military sometimes can be predictable. Oh, we're going to know they're going to be doing a patrol on this. And uh, that's when the, really the casualties of that war really came home. And I didn't, I didn't experience that. Matter of fact, the, uh, my unit suffered the first casualties of the war. And then uh, I wasn't there that long, maybe two months, and we got hit by friendly fire. And... I lost part of my hearing and stuff and some teeth. And my wife said, that's it. No more wars. That's it. That's the third one. we got young kids. You're done. Not going through this anymore. One of the things that happened to me is that, you know, our friends and stuff, they're seeing me on television and stuff blowing up around us. And they started sending food to our home. Well, that's what you do when someone has died. You know, if you, you know what I'm saying? And like, it was the worst. They were, it was all well-intentioned, but they were thinking now it's a lot of stress going on, but they started sending food and that just ratcheted up the, uh, 
anxiety level with my wife and everything else. And, um, my daughter was in middle school, like fifth, fourth, fifth grade, something. And some kids made a comment to her that, hey, my parents were watching your dad on TV last night, said he's going to come home in a body bag. And they say that to her. And so then my wife gets a call that our daughter is crying at school. And I got a real sense of what the military families go through. And, you know, and, and, and yeah. then, you know, a lot of them are in those military public schools and probably best, you know, they get some insulation, but wow. It, I never realized the toll that it took on families until it, it hit mine. So, um, no idea what yeah. the worst thing you could do, the worst thing anybody can do at my house at dinner or anything or friends is bring up a rack. <laughs> my wife suddenly like, no, no, don't talk about it. I want to be reminded. <laughs> so, but it was, I, I love doing it. I had a great crew. My, uh, cameraman had been a combat photographer with the Marines in Gulf war one. So he'd been in the, in it. My, um, producer had been on the West bank covering it there. I'd done two wars. I've been around shooting and stuff, not really getting shot at so much. And so we went to this unit. It was a, uh, a Patriot missile unit for uh, air defense. And we thought there would be scuds and everything. And nobody in the unit had ever been in combat. We were it. We were the three that had seen, we we're the old guys that had come in. They were all kind of techies. They'd sent over a command sergeant major from the 82nd Airborne because he had been Gulf War One. And he wanted to put kind of a warrior ethos into their minds and, you know, cracking the whip on them. Uh, so, you know, we, we, were, we were originally embedding with the 101st Airborne out of Fort Campbell. And we went out and you trained with them. And we, you had to get also certified for treating battlefield wounds. You had to get certified for... Uh, gas, you know, warfare. How do you get on the suit, the mask, and they run, they run a stopwatch on you and all that sort of stuff. You had to go through those that training first. But we went out and we decided that the 101st Airborne wouldn't work. They're airborne and they all they come in helicopters. And we were like, we had downsized gear, but we were still like, you know what? We'll get killed coming out the door with this crap we'll, we won't last any time and you know i got to know when i was there uh general david petraeus uh petraeus wow. later became the director of the cia and then he had a scan you know, scandal and got removed uh, but great guy and stuff but we're like now nah, this is not going to work and i began looking around and i realized hey there is a patriot missile but battalion at Fort Bliss in El Paso. And this will be great because in Gulf War One we had all the scuds and you got to see the Patriots shooting them down. Great video, great TV, be great. And usually, in you know, this the Patriots were behind the lines. They were protecting 
air fuels, few ammo dumps, key logistical things. And I thought, okay, yeah, I'll be relatively safe. Told my wife, don't worry. You know, we're going to kind of try to stay out of harm's way. Well, we get into country and we were literally the last on the last plane jumbo jet out of Fort Bliss. And the unit was already there and got set up at, at what was called Camp Virginia. There were all these staging bases across northern Iraq, some named after the colonies and other things. And we get there and, you know, they're in these communications trailers with their gears and and because they got a big radar complex and everything else. And we go in and we'd spent time at Fort Bliss with them. You know, before all of this, you get getting to know everybody. They like us, we like them, because you're going to be living with them. And the colonel, commander of the unit, caught get tells everybody in this trailer we get there to get out. Shuts the door and he said, "Okay, I got to tell you guys something, and you need to know this that we've gotten intelligence that the desert is going to be seeded with anthrax. Where you're going to get anthrax shots, but." We're expecting to get hit with chemical warfare and all, and we've gotten an estimated of casualties. And the, prediction, the projections are we're going to suffer a lot of casualties, particularly since we're a lead unit. Oh, by the way, you know, our missile launchers weigh 89,000 pounds. We don't really, we've never taken them across a desert. We got to go a long way. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know if they can make it. And we don't really we don't really have any force protection. They have sent us a National Guard unit from Florida, and their only training has been in the, for tropical fighting in Panama. They and they have arrived here, and you know they got Humvees. We got no armor. They got some fifty caliber machine guns, and that's kind of it. And that's us. So if you want to back out, I understand. If you want to go home, you know, this is a changed, whole change deal. We're not going to be at the rear. And we were like, back out. What are you talking about, man? <laughs> this is a dream. This is a dream, you know. And so, and sure enough, I mean, a lot of the predictions of casualties, some of that came true. The, uh, the biological and chemical warfare did not, although everybody thought it was and prepared. I thought it was, and just didn't, it didn't happen. But so, I call it, it was the best of times and the worst of times. It was a great time for uh, telling a story and being at the front and everything else. But then we got hit by a friendly fire from an F-16 that misidentified us as the enemy. We were straddling the forward line of battle, and they put a missile into us. That was a bad day. No one got injured because the missile misfired. There was a huge friendly fire investigation. They determined that the missile had worked. And by the way, it was with a few that did not work. The good Lord was looking at us for that day. It misfired and it was the, the uh, harm missile is designed to take out radars of SAM sites, surface air missile sites. And so it comes in and the nose cone explodes and shoots thousands of these little titanium needles over a wide area. And it's designed just to make mincemeat out of electronics and everything. 
And the missile came in, it didn't explode overhead. It came in and hit in front of our radar in the sand and then turned up going up and then exploded. And so all of this stuff skimmed the top of our helmets, but the shock wave and all, you know, it, it was like you put a M80 firecracker in my ear. It's just like, a, it's, it, it's a crack. You know, I've heard of artillery at a distance, but never on top of it, on top of you. And I mean, it just, there's a shock wave goes through you too. And so that's sort of, you know, I suddenly found myself having trouble thinking straight afterwards. It kind of scrambled me and I couldn't, couldn't hear for a year. It sounded like a telephone was ringing a loud phone in my ears constantly, constantly try that wow. going to sleep, you know, finally got that together. But also coming back, I, as a result of my inner ear being messed up, I got vertigo. So if I got up from bed quickly, or if I stood up from a chair quickly, the room started spinning, I would immediately start throwing up. So it was a while to get that under control. Uh, so like I said, best of times, worst of times, worst of times, some of the kids that we did stories with before the war kicked off were killed. Um, and you know, this was the Pentagon did what, the embedded reporter where you live with them. You got with them behind that board them. And as a reporter, you know, you cover bad things and crime scenes and everything, horrible stuff. But you don't, you don't know the people. So there's a detachment that, you know, you're sort of desensitized and you stand outside of it. Uh, but boy, when you've been living with everyone and you know everyone and it happens, that's a whole, it, it, it really does hit you and, and hard. And there's no time to grieve. You, you know, you got, you're moving on. They're dead. We're moving on. There's no time to, for grief. That's a, another hard thing you know, in the military, uh, that I gained a new appreciation for how hard that is on everyone. Yeah. Rub some dirt on it. Get on. Sorry about this, but man, yeah. that's, that's, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a tough, um, so then you, then, then you've come back and then it, it, you're trying to transition back into, I'm trying to remember the timeline. Like this is when you're getting back into like, um, new station and um, well, how is that working with your hearing? I mean, <laughs> so, so I came back in that uh, the, I went over there for the CBS station group. Now the station group that I, I work for, that's all the stations that CBS owned all over the country. And so my stories would appear there some on the evening news, then it was Dan rather, but they would appear on all those, you know, it's like a network within the local stations. And that's how I came back and decided with the producer, hey, we really need to do something on terrorism because we're starting to see that beginning with roadside bombs and everything else. And we really started breaking a lot of stories around it. The funny thing was years later, um, we get a call from CBS in New York and one of the executives says, hey, you know, we were looking at search results and you guys outrank on terrorism, all the correspondents, everybody, how are you doing that? How's that happening? Now, these are the same people before that like 
why are you wasting your time doing a blog? And my producer, it's a call and we look at each other, we kind of shake at our heads. And I said, you know what? We're just good writers. We're just really good writers down here. I was like, I'm not giving away the secret sauce. And they believed it and hung up. And we looked at each other and just shook our heads like, oh my God, what a, <laughs> and then I'll never forget, this happened after I left, probably in the 2009, 2010 timeframe, this major CBS executive was down for a station meeting. He was making the rounds across the country and someone said, say, hey, when do you think our audience will be able to watch the news and programming on their cell phones? He reaches in his pocket and he pulls out his, his, and I think it was an iPhone, pulls it out, holds it up. And he says, I just don't think anybody will ever want to watch anything on this itty bitty screen. That says it all. Later, he got promoted to even a bigger and bigger position. I'm like, oh my God, no wonder. You know, people down in the bottom of the trenches got him, but the decision makers, they didn't get it. Yeah. Probably for, you know, for everyone on here that's internet savvy, it's, that's probably hard for them to even get their head around. But I'm telling you, it was a slow adaptation of old media, understanding of stuff. And it's why they lost so much ground as well. Oh, I've, uh, if you don't mind me sharing, like I, watching your analytics when you've had a TV like episode I've gotten on there, it's like a bomb goes off compared to the rest of the traffic. Um, I can understand that it'd be hard to see the noise of search when you're looking at that kind of like um, that kind of traffic going on mm -hmm. on a regular basis at the at, at the high level. Uh, I can uh, it'd be like, why would you want to do something like search? Like you let other people do that. I I guess I could understand the perspective looking at that comparison, but yeah, looking from our point of view, it's like, no, oh, this is <laughs> this is where we want to be. Yeah. You know? What I do like about web 2.0 is you can hear from the audience. You know, we, we do a shout out for, you know, join our email community. Um, because if one thing I learned along the way, and you guys know this, do not build, you know, don't build your house in somebody else's property. Uh, not, don't do it on Mark Zuckerberg, anything. Um, you know, I grew up in East Texas and there was a phenomenon there and across the South called sharecropping and sharecropping was poor blacks and poor whites were taken advantage of. They literally rented the owner's land to farm on and the owner charged them for it, got a share of the crops. Well, you know, if that's a bad year and there were always bad years in farming, you're under, you're underwater. They never owned the land. And I just remember the lessons of it. It kept poor farmers in poverty. And so I've thought about that all through this Like, No, I'm not going to be a poor farmer on Mark Zuckerberg's farm. Not going to do it. And so, you know, we have our own website. We want to, we use Facebook and Kevin, you do this to drive subscriptions to drive people to subscribe to the podcast. Uh, we want to collect the emails because we can really, that's something we can really own and control. You know, it's, it's interesting. I was talking to the social media people at 
SCA in Australia. And they were saying, you know, hey, why don't you have a big Facebook group? And I gave them the lecture, you know, I don't do, you know, nah, not, I don't work for Zuckerberg. And then they told me, said, well, you know, there's a podcaster here that's been sued for defamation over things that have been said in his Facebook group. Now, remember the law and defamation is different all over the world, different from here. You know, here you have to, if it's a public figure, you got kind of a free pass on it. You, you have to prove actual malice. You have to prove that, Hey, I knew it was false and I was malicious going after them. Thus, very few people that sue media companies or journalists ever win because that's a high bar to get over. But in other countries, that's all different. So, yeah, somebody was biting a bullet over defamation in a Facebook group. So, not going there. Yeah, I'm, I'll admit I'm really been impressed like um a lot of times you get someone starts uh, you know businesses uh, trying to start up and you start they start seeing success that's like the, the nail is just going to keep hammering that nail harder right you you've diversified like explosively it's like all over the, like uh you got this going you've got this you've got this you're working on working different areas not married to any one uh, any one channel and uh, yeah yeah definitely credit to you you know it was interesting i went to podcast evolutions in Los Angeles in March. That's a smaller version of podcast movement that has come here, but it, it was a great conference There are various panels and the head of what is supposed to become YouTube's podcast platform. Uh, you know, they're coming with a platform, but who knows what will ever be here. Uh, he actually, and it, it, I was shocked to hear somebody from Google saying this. He was recommending, hey, use our platform to drive traffic and promote your podcast. And he was like, not advocating you put your whole podcast there or anything like that. And I thought, golly, I've never heard of anyone from Google encouraging anybody to leave, <laughs> leave Google. Yeah. I don't know what you hold you there. Now, yeah. they'll keep you there with this platform. And the reason they're doing this, there was a, a big study doing by uh, Edison research and the top three places that people listen to podcasts, number one, Apple, number two, Spotify, number three, YouTube. And, you know, there's a big audience there. It's where people are accustomed to going, you know, where they, where they live and they live in YouTube. And we've actually been putting, uh, our entire episodes there just anticipating, you know, hoping that we can get a part of the Google platform somehow when they get there, but just for visibility, just to drive, drive to other things. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, so you're going through the, you talked about the, uh, you know, they when a lot of, uh, a lot of journalists are losing things and you're making a transition. You're wa walking through like living through the 2008 housing crisis and there's warning flags going off all over. And some of this stuff, I just, um, it like, I mean, you remember like, Hey, we're going to have to do all this to save the banks. Right. And it's all happening so quickly. I mean, I don't know how much you, know, you were seeing, like there was much of a warning sign that the industry was going to get hit, but 
uh, was this like, how fast was this to you? And like, what was that transition like for you? Like, um, Oh, it was hard. And many of my journalist friends, they knew nothing about the internet. They did, they were stick in the muds. They didn't want to make the transition and they, you know, they ended up a tough place. I mean, all for all the networks that had their own and operated stations they are called O&Os, but that, you know, have the station in Los Angeles and New York, you know, NBC's got one, ABC's got one all over the country's this way. They literally went in and looked at ratings. And if you're an anchor, for instance, and you weren't number one, if you were number two, number three, they were like, they were cut, getting rid of you. Or they were saying, we want 50% of your salary back. And that happened here in Dallas. Some anchors were, they're out. Others that had good ratings, they still said to them, hey, for what's going on, we're, re, we're re redoing your contract. And you and they, listen, they took, there's big egos. They'd never admit it, but they took huge pay cuts, huge pay cuts. So, you know, anchors in Dallas, because it was a major market, but the, the whole that world has changed, was changing. You know, they used to make 800,000 a year and 900,000 a year. Well, suddenly it was like, you're now going to make 200,000 a year. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, we all make the mistake of living according to our salary our lifestyle. <laughs> Big mistake folks. Don't do it. I did it. And it was a, it was a shaky time. Um, and it was, I mean, it, it was tough. My wife went back to work. She went to teaching, uh, to, cause the big challenge when you come out is health insurance. So we, we need to hurt teaching salary for health insurance. You know, two kids, me, that's a, that's a killer. When I first came out, you know, they give you that, I forget what you call it, where you can stay on the plan a while, but you Cobra. Cobra. Yeah. Oh my God. <clears throat> Cobra yeah. was $1,300 a month. Yeah. You need a job just to pay for Cobra. Yeah. Here I'm out trying to start a deal, you know, uh, and you know, the other thing that happened to me, I'd always worked in the belly of big media. They did everything. I didn't know how to run a business, you know? So suddenly, and my father had been a small businessman and, but I, I never understood how he did it, what he did. Um, and so suddenly you got to learn everything. I, I, one of the things that helped me. I signed up for a class at the University of Texas at Dallas. They had a monthly entrepreneurs class that would last an entire day for 12 months. And you got a cert certificate of entrepreneurship at the end, but you learned everything. Uh, you learned how to, you know, how do you set up an LLC? You know, how do you do accounting? How, the whole thing. Um, how do you measure growth? And there were a lot of books to read along the way that really, that really helped me. I wish I'd followed all of the advice, <laughs> but you know, basically you got to make money. You have to have a profit, you know, you got to make, do things that make money. So, uh, you know, I had one kind of little failed venture, my wife and I are horse people and 
you know, we went out and launched a site and we're creating our own horse tack gear. But, you know, Web 2.0 wasn't fully here. You know, you couldn't have that interactivity at all. And that's what we were, we were too early. And then we, we were Amazon dealers selling this stuff, but we realized, look, we're not creators of physical products. That's just not us. We're digital. So I learned, I learned a lesson there that just didn't work, just wore you out. So when I got ready to, you know, things had really changed uh, with websites and everything else, interactivity. And so when I got ready to do True Crime Reporter, I literally, I spent a year working on a business plan and doing research. I found, you know, people always ask the question, well, why do women love true crime? And I found academic studies, esoteric stuff, and really began digging in about what is it? What is it they like and stuff? And built a monetization plan about how will I monetize this? And interestingly, you know, so I had down books, speaking events, that sort of thing, which of course that went down the tube with COVID, but I guess four fifth on the list was take it to television. And the way television had worked for shows that, that world it's, it's a slow moving world because of so much money they're handing out to you, but you have to have a pitch and these are typically written pitches, one sheeters and the people that commission these things, it's kind of hard for them to get their head around, around it, you know, like, well, what, what to understand it. And I had a feeling, look, a podcast, you can hear the main characters. You can hear them, you hear their voice you, and you can hear the story arc. Where does the story go? Are there story arcs under this for each person? You can hear, okay, we know, we, you can hear it, how we know how to do it. And so that's kind of how it worked. But again, it got discovered through networking. Now I'll tell you one other sneaky thing I did. Uh, and we targeted the two key zip codes in Hollywood where we know the actors are and the agents are. And what I was looking for, hoping that some young actor would like, you know, like it and repost it and stuff. But what did happen, agents saw it. It brought agents to it and they started contacting me. And uh, I had a call before. <laughs> yeah. So I had a call before you guys with another big production company wanting to work with me. And it actually came from an agent two years ago that, you know, connected on Facebook. And that was just kind of a gut instinct of, okay, you know, who's, you know, uh, here's where they are, you know, where's, where might be an audience for this. So you gotta, you gotta kind of noodle and just think differently as you're, you're doing this. How, how can I, find the people that I, I need to reach. One of the things that we did during the pandemic a few times, 
you know, I just did free online Zooms with companies that were looking for ways to entertain their workforce that were that were primarily female that were at home and just to offer up stuff, you know, and that helped. So, and I'm really trying to ratchet that up now. Uh, I do some things. I've started appearing on other people's podcasts, not true crime podcasts, but podcasts that are women's talk type shows. Crossover audiences, right? Yeah. You know, cause I know women, large audience women. So, you know, if they're talking Chanel purses, you know, there's one I've done here locally that is called uh, the Bubble Lounge. Their audience is women in Highland Park, University Park, and other affluent areas. Uh, it's not a you know, it's not a giant audience. They don't want a giant audience. The products they're selling are, are to upscale, well-heeled, rich, rich women. And so I've been on there. And again, that, you know, that's an audience, you know, I've been on, they've had me on twice. So you, you got to think that way. Some people are like, hey, aren't you going on another true crime podcast? I'm like, well, there's a lot of true crime podcasts. I don't really respect. I just feel like they're plagiarizing. They're just reading stuff from books and Wikipedia. So no, there are a lot, not a lot of those places I want to be. But these other places where women are, and one of the other things too I've done, I've really used LinkedIn. Um, I uh, and I, I just think it's a big opportunity there. I go connect with female journalists, female anchors, because what I know they have big social media followings. They're all into that. I go connect with them. And got a pitch I'll later send to come subscribe to the podcast. I target women in marketing because, again, and I target women in fashion. And then I also target law enforcement. And that really brings me uh, detectives and what have you that want to be on the show that want to tell the stories that I know later that there could be TV there. And so, you know, I found that's pretty easy to do. And I, I just haven't felt there's any law. You know, there's not an algorithm locking me down. You have that so, episode, uh, that episode with the uh, Sheriff McNamara, McNamara and yeah. Um, I mean, you're getting sitting down talking to the, the people who were really doing the uh, doing the work at the time. I mean, uh, is it, uh, yeah. I mean, how do you how do you talk them through these trying to not evoke negative, like, but getting them to just uh, wanting to like to share their stories on this? That's... Well, and I'll say this: anybody doing a podcast, the key is to be a good listener. This the podcast is not about you; it's about your guest, and really getting into the core of what your guest is interested in and what they do and, you know, peeling the, away the layers of the onion to get them to tell their story. Um, and, you know, fortunately, you know, I got three decades experience of listening and people tend 
you know, be it a podcast or whatever, uh, sometimes the host gets too much of it's about themselves and, uh, and they don't listen. They're, they're thinking about the next question or, I, or I've got a comment to make me look really smart. And I'll give you, I'll give you an example of this, um, from the television show. What I really felt really doing it. Um, part of my deal was, look, I'm an executive producer. I'm bringing everybody to the table for the interviews. It's going to be way, way more people than what you see and are here in the podcast. And I'm in the chair asking the questions. Now, the rest of the crew, you can listen. You think I've missed something here, you know, tell me, but I'm asking the questions. And they were like, do you have a list of questions? No, no. I, I want an impromptu, real response. You know, I, I'm going to listen. The art is the follow-up question. If I, ask, if I ask President Reagan a question at the White House, it was I always asked open-ended questions. And I, it, the follow-up was important. Listen to what he said. I've noticed in some of the press conferences there, you know, we've gotten into a thing where reporters kind of want to show how smart they think they are and they want their FaceTime and they don't do that, you know? Um, so, and I, I, so I'll, I will give you an example of an open-ended question that got a remarkable response that's in the TV show. I got the sister of one of McDuff's victims to do an interview and I set the interview in the, in the chapel where they had the funeral for her sister. Her sister was abducted and murdered, and they didn't find her body for seven years until these investigators, before McDuff was executed, um, got him to tell them where it was. And they wanted to bring peace to these families. So we're in there, and this is near the end, and I said to her, I said, Laurie, what do you say to your sister when you talk to her at night? And oh boy, this flood of emotion comes out in all of this. I mean, it is, it is something. And so then later the crew and the showrunner and everybody's sitting there and the, the others are listening through um, Zoom online and they go, my God, how did you know she talked to her sister? I said, I didn't. That's an open-ended question. Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't just think about people and their emotions, you know, and you know, when I was at the white house, I used to see Sam Donaldson of ABC do this. He was a master of doing it with Reagan. And he would ask these, you know, some people would think, Sam, have you lost your mind? Holy mackerel. Reagan would answer and, you know, reveal some new information. You just never knew. So, you know, there is a, there's an old saying among journalists. There's not a stupid question. There's not a stupid question. But listen to what they say and listen between the lines. That'll take you to the next question. You know, that'll feed you. I sit down for an interview. I know uh, bullet points. You know, I may have bullet points written down often. I just have them in my head if I really know the story. 
but you got to listen. And uh, in our podcast, some I do with uh, Bill Johnston, who's the former federal prosecutor. And you'll hear Bill and I do this. We'll even question each other about a case I did, a case he did, that sort of thing. But it's all based on listening. It's all about where, where does this go? Um, as we, you know, kind of, but along the way, we're trying to tell you a story. Now, Bill, good Lord, he, he had so many jury trials. He had so much time on his feet before juries. He'd tell a hell of a story, you know, because you had, you got to dumb it down for a jury. And in television, we had to dumb it down as well. I and mean, it's like seventh, eighth grade level. You try to get it down to, um, and in TV and news, you know, I used to get, because I did specials, I might get two minutes. That was considered an eternity in news. Typically, the package, you call them packages, would be a minute 30. You know, you got to tell that story in a minute 30. Well, you learn to be a pretty good storyteller when you got a minute <laughs> Really 30. quick. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, when I was starting on stone storytelling, the first uh, news director that I worked for, and this was in New York when Viacom was putting the station together, they hired this guy who was an amazing, he'd been an ABC correspondent. Oh my God, he was amazing. He was considered one of the best writers ever at ABC in those days. And we were talking about storytelling. And he said, look, Robert, uh, you're from Texas. I was in Texas at the time. He said, that, you know, those Baptist ministers when they, when they go to preacher school, here's what, here's how they teach them to do their sermon. And this is where we're going to do stories. Um, you tell them what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them. And at the end, you tell them what you told them. That's it right there. And that really is Shakespeare's three-act play, you know, three-act drama. And, you know, you always create that second act. You've created some kind of tension and villain and you're going to solve it in the third act and you know whether your podcast is about a software or a product you have to think about that you know you got to tell that story that way in terms of solving the problem of the person listening you know that's about their problem solving it in my case you know it's entertainment you know i, I gotta i gotta hold your attention and in the challenge, I mean, I'll give you the inside secret of streaming television. The challenge is not, oh, how many people watch the first episode? It's the challenge. They measure this every evening. And the next morning's discussion is about it. It's about, okay, how many people started on episode one and they went to two and they went to three and they went to four and they went to five? Your measure of success in streaming is how many people started and made it to five. And fortunately for us, and I worked with a brilliant showrunner in structuring this thing. And that was, our thinking was about, okay, cliffhangers, moments that grab you inside that, what do we do to keep them coming back? And the great thing, Fox, followed our advice and we said, look, this is binge watchable. Dunk all five episodes at once. And it happened. You know, people were like, whoa, okay, what happened? You know, because episode one ends 
where the woman turns her face into the camera and you know she's about to be murdered. She, you know, oh my God, I think she's about to be murdered. So you come back episode two to find out what happened to her and we keep it going. Got to do the same in the podcast. You know, got to build these things in there. Keep them, keep them hooked. I think something you're just, uh, just a masterful at is like, I love, I love serial killer like stuff. Right. So not all general true crime, like serial killer, like, um, uh, and, uh, you make the, you, you make it feel real. <laughs> like, it, <laughs> like bring me in the moments. And that's, that's the feeling. It's like that tingling feeling of like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that little bit of fear, <laughs> like that, that'll keep me coming back. And, yeah. and a lot of shows are like, they, they're, yeah, they miss that. And I'm telling you, if you're, if you're doing a business show, you know, if your show is really the marketing arm of your business, and I think lots of podcasts are like that, you need to, you know, you need to have a whiteboard and think about that of planning these things about, okay, what's the objective here? How do we get them to come back to the next episode and keep them coming? You know, um, and I tell you my podcast it, we whiteboarded it because it was 17 episodes. And so, you know, there's one giant story arc from the first episode to what we know is going to be the last episode. The last episode, the serial killer gets executed. But there's many arcs under that arc about things happening with investigators and stuff. And these are these are all arcs that might, you know, one arc might start episode one and that sub that sub arc concludes episode three but there's another one that started but overall there's still this overarching arc and so um you know you need to think about that i see some people get off they overthink it and i see at conferences people preach the uh, hero's journey you know what i'm talking about from the book and all and everything that's that's really gets it complicated Real complicated. I'm like, folks, follow, follow Shakespeare, the three act play. Uh, I think Aristotle too, or Socrates, three act play. Set up, set up the conflict. You know, the con- the character, then have the conflict. What is it? You know, maybe the product, problem solved, and then resolve it. And you may have a number of those over a series, but keep that simple in your thinking. Don't don't overthink it, you know? Um, and I've got an advantage. I mean, I've got an advantage. I mean, I've been a storyteller for three decades. Uh, when I was at the congressional committee, as part of being an investigator, you had to go out and question people and you had to get stuff out of them that they did not want to tell you. Uh, and then you had to write it up. You had to write long memos about it and tell a story that, any member, any senator or house member could be could with all their press time could understand in one page. So that really helped me. I know, ne- you know, I'll tell you, I never took a writing class at all. And I probably what never, never took a writing class. I took a, I took uh, a filmmaking class undergrad. That was, um, uh, they didn't have filmmaking at A&M, but they set up a, self-study one that I got credit for. I took photography at a and 
journalism, photography, others, you know, because you're telling a story. And then later, uh, while I was working on the Hill as an in, in Congress, I took a night class in cinematography at the University of Maryland, just learning the nuts and bolts of how to do it and in that medium, how to, how to do that. But never, never took a writing class. And in podcasting and certainly in television, you're also writing for the ear. A lot of people that are in TV, they have a difficult time writing for print. Fortunately, I'm able to do it, go back and forth. But for TV, you're writing and podcast, especially podcasting, you're writing for the ear. In TV, you're writing to complement the pictures. You know, I never write for TV without watching all the pictures. Never wrote a story, nothing. I, I, I'm either on location on a news story and I know what's been shot. And I, so I'm writing for those pictures. If I don't, and fortunately for me, when I first started in New York, um, you had to learn, you had to know how to edit. And in those days, your videographers, they might shoot three stories in a day. They might shoot you in the morning and get an assignment for another reporter at one. And then maybe they get a spot news. They got to shoot something. So, but they're going to have to edit your story. Uh, and so you needed to start the edit. You needed to have laid what we call the A row, A and B row. Those terms are kind of out of the old film days in which literally A row was the talking heads and B row was the cover footage to tell the story. And they actually, for news back in those days, they rolled both, both film strings at the same time and they you know, mixed them together live. So we still talk A roll, B roll, but I had to get the A roll done. I had to have it. I had to put in my narration, and then I had to put in the soundbite, you know, piece of video, and then I might start putting in pictures, you know, that have been shot. Trying to make as much progress because then the photography shot, he's going to hit the door under deadline pressure uh, and start, and you want to, you know, so. You can literally write a television story that you can't be edited. You can just, you can write them into a hole. You, they might look at you and go, what do you think in here? There's no pictures. For yeah. <laughs> so in television, you know, let's just take it back to C-Spot Run. You know, you, you're seeing Spot Run in the video, but you don't say Spot is running. You know, you kind of talk about why Spot is running. What is Spot doing? What's the what's going on around Spot? It's the stuff that's not in the picture that you you write about. Now in podcasting or even hell podcasting, it's radio. Now you're writing. I I love it because it's it's very immersive. You're you literally are in people's heads, and I've read research. It activates a different part of the brain. And television is kind of a passive thing. Uh, listening is really 
you're literally in somebody's head. And so you have a lot, you have a little more control over them and you can manipulate their senses. Just compelling to keep them hooked and listening. So one of the things I've learned along the way is you got to paint a portrait too, detail. And I'm starting to do that more, um, that, you know, I, I'll give you an example. I've got a, uh, an episode we did about the love triangle cyclist murders in Austin, Texas. I don't know if you followed this. The story got international coverage where the, uh, male professional cyclist is having, he's got two girlfriends live in and he's got another romance and the live in finds out and she allegedly murders his love interest. And just from what I know of women and interest, <laughs> boy, oh boy, a love triangle like that, you know, um, I know it's going to get the views. So I had to rush out an episode. And then when we listened to it, my wife, who's out of the entertainment industry, she listened too. she's really great. She's listed as executive producer, but what she does is listen to rough cuts. And she listened to it and went, no, nah, you know, you need to recut that. And we're, and we're doing that. You need to rewrite part of it. And what it needed was, what is this, what's this 35 year old male cyclist looks like that any woman would be even interested in him? What's he look like? What does he do? Where did he come from? Each of the women, well, what do they look like? Where do they come from? What have they been doing? And so I've gone back to add that in, you know, the alleged murder is 35 years old. She was a yoga, also a yoga instructor, not quite professional caliber cyclist, but in high school, she was on the volleyball team. She's slim, trim, fresh face has long wavy red hair, uh, blue eyed, freckled, that sort of stuff. So they can start getting a visual image. Yeah, and <laughs> now one of the things that's interesting that's coming out is that in the reason one of YouTube is, you know, they want a, they want visual podcast as well. And one of the things I saw in research, a company I was working with, Lots of women are Googling people you're talking about, you know, and they hear the name of the serial killer and they're Googling them. And so, well, Hey, if you can't describe them. If you, if you get into the video section of the podcast and we've done a demo, we've had a demo up on YouTube for the broomstick killer. You see his mugshots, you see him in the courtroom. So I'm, you know, kind of fulfilling that need. Yeah. That's all experimental. But uh, the other, you know, I'll tell you what I like about podcasting too, is it's pretty, it's simple to do. You know, you can kind of go anywhere and do it if you have good, I, I'm a believer in good quality equipment and all, but uh, in, con, you know, compared to television, like in Iraq, we were you know, we slimmed down for stuff there. We could even do it lighter now, but I call the camera crew, my 500 pound pencil. And I used to call it that covering stories. You know, you got, a, you know, in the day there was a 
a sound man, the videographer, all this stuff, you know, and oh my God, you know, his weight and everything hard to move around. Uh, easy in podcasting. You can take a roadcaster and, you know, mics and you're rolling. I mean, it, it is so much, it's portable and easy. And, you know, when I was doing the, the first season, uh, I would, I, I interviewed people in their kitchen and I had, I use, I love road equipment. I use the roadcaster and the roadcaster you can set for whatever road microphone you're using. And I had very directional microphones and it worked. Um, yep. And if you can get people in an environment they're comfortable with, all the better. Uh, now, today, we've expanded. I've got a studio behind my home. Uh, and it's, it's, I do a three, we video and it's th we do three people, my partner and I and a guest, or it's just myself and a guest, but we video and we do it in there. Um, and it, it, it works well because I've had, I've had so much experience of just putting people at rest. You know, we'll have a little conversation before it starts. Maybe we have coffee for them and we just talk and, just to get over any jitters. The camera, the camera always adds a little jitters. People are self-conscious, especially doing the TV show. Now you got a huge camera staring them in the face. You know, <laughs> yeah. that, that's a, you got to get people beyond that. And you, as the person, I got to, you know, I had to get them to look at me, focus on me, forget about all the stuff around us. And uh, yeah. So I, it's a lot, of, a lot of fun. I, I grew up in a family of storytellers. And interestingly, I have found, I've got friends that were Pulitzer Prize winners at the Philadelphia Inquirer, one of the great newspapers. And they're great writers, great storytellers, you know, in print. And everybody talking has noticed that you'll find this common denominator with somebody in your family that influenced you as a great storyteller. And it kind of got you. It somehow got in your DNA. I've heard that over and over. In my case, uh, part of my family was in East Texas. They were horse people and they were oil field workers. And they had a place in East Texas. A family would go there, you know, one weekend every six weeks, but they had a little lake for fishing, a small place, ranch with cattle, horses, mainly horses. But the patriarch of the family, my great uncle, was an amazing storyteller. And my, growing up, I think my father had been influenced by him. My father was a great storyteller. And what would happen is that they had a screen porch with rockers. And the whole family would eat. This is, tells you how different times are. The women would all go to the kitchen and wash dishes. And they'd all talk in there. You could hear them tell a story. The men would sit out there and my uncle, great uncle, would lead the conversation with stories. Stories from the oil fields, stories from horsing and other stuff. And he was they were just spellbinding. And one of the cool things he used to do, and I today I still remain amazed by it, he had packs of beagles, beagle hounds, dozen hounds in the pack. And 
you know, it's night and you hear the frogs and the crickets and everything that just the symphony of insects going at night and the dogs would get after something often. And you'd hear them down in the hollow where everything would echo. And he would start narrating this chase of what they were doing as if he's there with them. And he would start calling the name of the, you know, old yellow, he's talking, he's taking the lead and sprinkles. She just went over the log that's down and uh, they're turning, they're turning here and they're doing this. And now they, ah, oh, Hey, they just went under the old tractor out there. None of which he, you know, was there. He's just making it up. And finally they've treed the possum or what have you. And because you'd hear them all really start yelping and all. And I'd be mesmerized. He'd do this for half an hour, just this Im improv story going. Wow. And I still think back to it like, and everybody would sit there in a trance. You're hearing the dogs and you're thinking, oh yeah, that's, that's what's happening. That's what's happening. So I was always influenced by this. Some of my favorite memories of childhood are sitting on that porch and those stories rolling out from them. working in the oil fields of East Texas to horses and everything else and what they were doing with horses. They were all cowboys. Now my father wasn't, my father, small businessman, but they were all, and, and one of my uncles too was, a, uh, had gone to A&M and I followed him then. After World War II, he, he was an engineer, but the other cowboys, they were hard drinking, hard living people. Great stories, just great stories. Yeah. yeah. And I hope everybody that, you know, that's, that's also one of the keys. And listen, if you haven't had that, uh, read books by great storytellers, you know, go expose yourself to great storytelling, go watch great television shows that are good stories and watch it and then watch it and then go back and watch it again and think about what was going on. Uh, like for instance, the Godfather, there's a great Paramount series out called the offer. That's an incredible story about the making of the Godfather and the challenges, but that's Francis Ford Coppola. I mean, you talk about a great storyteller in film, uh, books, even the classics, you know, to kill a mockingbird, go read it. You know, um, I read my, I read lots of history, lots of history, you know, the, Good Lord, I've been reading a 600-page book on Napoleon. Great storytelling. Wow. Great. Wow. Put, put great stories in your head. And I, I did that throughout my career as well. And that, I'm telling you, you get exposed to it, you know, it'll, it, it will get in your DNA. Um, and, but you've got to be, you have to have a good story capture your audience to capture attention. There's so much stuff pulling at them. Let me look at TikTok. Those, oh. are, 15, those are 15 minute stories. I mean, excuse me, 15 second stories. And yeah. we have just started to experiment with it. I've had a college intern and she's been a TikToker. And so we, I think we've got three videos up. She's about to experiment some with uh, mug shots and stuff. But you know, I've got one there. It got 581 views. Lord, you know what that would have taken on Facebook or somewhere, you know? But we're yeah. trying to use it to drive traffic. 
Um, I had a true crime buff contact me on LinkedIn asking me about, hey, I've listened to your podcast. How, how do I do that and stuff? And and I said to him, so what are you doing now? And he said, well, I've got a, a true crime TikTok. Well, how many how many subscribers do you have? 1.8 million. Whoa. I'm like, how many how many views or have you had? 34 million. And I I go to his page and he is it's all video clips from confessions and interrogations and all of this. But the secret is he's putting the right captions on it to get the attention first. And I was like, whoa, you know, the obviously it's it's the time to do it. You know, there's not an algorithm. Yeah, choking everything off. And you remember the early days of Google where we get away with doing that, you know? Oh, all yeah. The stuff we used to do, that's, that's all gone. So, I, you know, uh, Dennis Yu has got a book out on TikTok. I recommend everybody read it. He's going to try to, he's got a formula he talks about. Y'all, I know Kevin, you know Dennis. He was, oh, yeah. And thanks for the tip. I just, uh, my copy just showed up two days ago. Yeah. So, you know, he used to be the Facebook wizard you know he was he was the guy and now he tells you that facebook's dead you know he's all into TikTok, and the thing he likes is not locked down by an algorithm yet it's you're more discoverable so we're trying that out uh you always got to be experimenting um and that's kind of what i'll make also makes it fun you know i'm still I'm still kind of something of the Wizard of Oz. You pull back the curtain and there's one guy back there pulling levers with <clears throat> steam and everything. You know, I've got some freelancers like Kevin who are really great in support. And I really have only one quote employee. He's 1099, but he's my audio producer and video. Uh, pretty freshly minted graduate of... Uh, old Mizzou in journalism and he's, he's been great. So, but that's, you know, life of the startup, you know, still trying to grow audience. It took us 10 months to produce the TV show. And so I kind of, um, <clears throat> let the podcast go big mistake. And so we got it back up and running in October. And I, the focus there is grow audience and get, um, advertisers trying to make some money there and at the same time we've got these other channels where we're trying to do licensing agreements to partner with other you know yeah. big big places and i really do think i mean i think Rand fishkin is right you've got to go find some influencers you got to find partners yeah i don't know what do you guys think what do you what's your experience now what you're doing Kevin, um, um, which uh, in which aspect, as far as like just, <laughs> just um, in like this, like this kind getting, of getting to you know how to ways to get discovered. Oh, this one, um, then um, the camera is really intimidating, <laughs> um, and so I haven't done this for a long time. Uh, Casey and I've been talking about this off and on for years. Uh, for about three, something like yeah, about whatever. three years, and um, and then then about four months ago, five something, or whatever. We just started like talking about it regularly. We've got to do it and trying to pump ourselves up. And 
we finally started a few weeks ago. <laughs> so that's because yeah. um, we got called out at a conference. Well, she wasn't directly talking to us. Which talk about you? But she said everything about us, and we weren't comfortable with it. I mean, we were texting each other as she's talking. And it's like, did you talk to her before this? <laughs> Do you feel was, that? I felt it. <laughs> okay. Felt it. Was it really about y'all, or whether it fit other people? No. In the room? It, she was just being very general, like yeah. just being very general. But it, the way she said it, he like hit like a rock or a knife right in the so, heart. And what did she say? It was. She's like. I talked about doing this for years and then yeah. it, I just told myself I had to do it once a week. I wasn't going to go crazy and do it every day, <laughs> but I had to do it at least once a week and do it for one year. As, uh, especially when she said the, all the changes that I would, uh, that I started going through, like I didn't yeah. expect them. These are all the things, but you know, you start. Um, and so I'm, I've, I've changed my life in, in so many ways. And this is everything we yeah. were like, yeah, sort of like, yeah, Jesus, we just have to start. Well, guys, yeah. this has been great, but the whole crew is coming back in here and it's about to get noisy and crowded. Okay. Well, let's <laughs> end right, it there. And but I, hey, thanks for having me on. I, I hope for people trying to do podcasts and other things and tell stories, this is helpful. Yeah, this and one, I got so many tabs open over here of stuff that I've got to look up now. So Yeah. And you can always find us at fan at truecrimereporter.com uh, for general inquiries. you got a great crime story. And I'm out there. and You've got my link tree for yeah. everybody. Yeah, I'm going to put all that in the notes. Else. So. Yeah, but if you got, you know, I'm always happy to talk to you about ways to tell a story and better ways to tell a story. Yeah, awesome. I appreciate you guys because we go way back. You, you were part of my journey when I started trying to figure out online. And thank you so much, Robert. We appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Thank you. All have a good.